Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this latest Institute for Government event, How Can the Better Use of Data Benefit Public Services, supported by Bright Initiative by Bright Data. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this afternoon. I think I should be thanking Michelle Donnellan for putting data firmly on the agenda of this mm -hmm. conference, uh, and great to see so many of you wanting to continue that discussion today. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the Institute for Government is the UK's leading independent think tank working to make government more effective. Lots of think tanks think about the what of particular policy areas. We think about the how, how government organises itself to deliver those things and publish lots of research, hold lots of events like this one, and do various bits of professional development as well to try and support that mission. Uh, Bright, the Bright Initiative is a global uh, programme and organisation that uses public web data <coughs> to drive positive change. It's powered by Bright Data, one of the world's most powerful web data platforms, and the initiative provides more than 350 public bodies, academic institutions and non-profits with the data and expertise to tackle the most pressing global issues of our time. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Daniel about that later. A bit of housekeeping before we get underway. Uh, this event is on the record, so anything you do say will be held against you. Uh, we will be publishing an audio recording on the Institute for Government website uh, in a few days' time as well. If you're on social media, we are live tweeting from at IFG events, and you can join in on hashtag IFGCons22, as well as hashtag CPC22. This is one of 14 events. In fact, this is one of the last of 14 events the IFG uh, is holding at Conservative Party Conference. Again, you'll be able to catch up on all of our events from Conservative Conference and from Labour Conference on the IFG website. So, how can the better use of data support public services? Well, according to Oliver Dowden's ministerial foreword to the National Data Strategy, the pandemic showed the high watermark of data use in government. There was lots of innovation when it came to using existing health data um, within public services and also in setting up new public services based around data, for instance, shielding the vulnerable and making sure that they received food deliveries. But there were also some controversies, uh, GPDPR and the attempts to use more of people's health data and also local government not having the data that it needed to fight the pandemic. We've got lots of government initiatives at the moment that are looking to join up data within and across departments and public services, whether it's the new integrated data service or the data protection and digital information bill, which has quite a bit to say about data sharing in government as well. There are great opportunities that come from more joined up data, better and more personalised public services, better understanding of how services are operating, better policies based on all of that understanding and greater efficiencies. But there are also risks that come as well, whether that's putting additional <coughs> burdens on frontline workers, untrustworthy data use, um, embedding inequalities and bias, or leading to expensive failures and not delivering the benefits that were promised. So how can government ensure that the public benefits from the use of data in public services? How can government grasp the opportunities while mitigating the risks? And what should the approach of the trust government be? Well, luckily, I've got four fantastic panellists to answer those rather small questions, uh, and plenty more as well. Um, I'll invite each of those to make an, an opening contribution of around five minutes. We'll then have some discussion uh, amongst the panel, and then we'll come to you, the audience, for questions as well. When we do that, please do wait uh, for the microphone. Uh, remember that you're on the record, and do tell us who you are as well. 
So I'll very quickly introduce our panel uh, before I invite them to speak. Uh, first of all, we'll be hearing from Aaron Bell, Member of Parliament for Newcastle and Lyme in Staffordshire, uh, elected for the first time in December 2019 with a majority of around 7,500. Mm -hmm. I think the first Conservative elected in that seat since 1885. Mm -hmm. um, he's the interim co-chair of the Science and Technology Committee, uh, very active on various all-party parliamentary groups that have uh, sort of data and digital interests as well, such as uh, financial technology and social media. He's actually got a background as a software architect and is actually the co-owner of a Newcastle-based financial technology startup, Divide By, which employs more than 40 people uh, in the area. Also has a quizzing record that makes many of my IFG colleagues uh, very <laughs> envious, myself included. After we've heard from Aaron, we'll hear from Dr Millie Zimitar, the Head of Public Policy at the Open Data Institute. And full disclosure, I'm also a Special Advisor at the ODI, as well as an Associate at the IFG. Uh, the ODI is a non-profit working with government companies and civil society to create a world where data works for everyone. Uh, before joining the ODI, Millie was Senior Policy Advisor at the Royal Society, uh, where she led various work on data and digital disruption, including data governance, data science skills, and privacy-enhancing technologies. Before that, she was Program Manager at the Alan Turing Institute, uh, and before that also did work with the Medical Research Council and was on an advisory group to Chatham House all about digital and data. We'll then hear from Matthew Feeney, who's the Head of Technology and Innovation at the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm sure you don't need an introduction to the CPS if you're here at Tory Party Conference, one of the most influential centre-right think tanks, founded in 1974 by Sir Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, before joining the CPS, Matthew was Director of the Cato Institute Project on Emerging Technologies. Uh, he's also worked for Reason, American Conservative Magazine, and the Institute for Economic Affairs, and has edited Eyes to the Sky, Privacy and Commerce in the Age of the drone as well as writing widely for other publications. And last but not least, we'll hear from Daniel Rick Standing, who's an investment director at EMK Capital, in which capacity he sits on the board of Bright Data. Uh, for the past five years, he's been actively involved in shaping <coughs> the direction and strategy of Bright Data, which now has over 15,000 customers. Uh, he's been an active participant in Bright in the Bright Initiative projects, including their role on the National Data Strategy Forum uh, and on the Data Skills Task Force as well. Uh, and he was previously a strategy consultant at Oliver Wyman. So a huge range of experience that our panel brings uh, to the topic today. Uh, so that's enough rambling from me. Uh, let's hear from first Aaron. Yeah, thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you all for coming. Uh, welcome to conference. If you've been here since Sunday, well done. Uh, not, not long to go now. Um, it's that, that's certainly how I feel. Um, as, he's, as Gavin said, my background is in software. Um, I've been on the Science and Technology Committee as well since, uh, since I was first elected, or since we first elected that committee early on. It's been a complete privilege to be on that committee, given everything that we've dealt with with COVID. In particular, we've had some incredible evidence sessions. Uh, we've also been carrying out an investigate, uh, an inquiry into data and the right to privacy in particular. I'm sure we'll all be talking about privacy uh, as we move through. Uh, also, interesting times, as Gavin said, with the Secretary of State saying what she said yesterday. Not, Gavin was asking me privately beforehand, it's not entirely clear whether that's a completely new direction or is that basically us continuing on roughly what was set out before the summer. Um, the response the government gave to the data and new direction consultation uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the, the reasons the government wants to look, work in this area in very broad terms are to reduce barriers to responsible innovation, to reduce burdens on businesses and deliver better outcomes for people, their customers, our constituents, boost trade and reduce barriers to data flows. And uh, I think I saw Theo Bertram commenting on Twitter only an hour ago or so that actually data flows are often more valuable than actual physical trade flows now in, in the world. And of course, delivering better public services, which is what the focus of this panel is about. 
Um, at the risk of stealing from Matthew, I, I'd like to sort of quote Rob Colville, who's the head of the CPS's um, database theory of the state, which is absolutely exemplified by COVID, is that the things that worked well during our COVID response were ones where we already had pre-existing databases. We already had, for example, a, a HMRC had done a lot of work on the PAYA system, which is why it was able to stand up furlough so quickly so effectively without actually, I mean, there was obviously people trying to take advantage of the system, there were people trying, but for the, ordinary, for the ordinary person, it worked incredibly smoothly, people got paid within, you know, the system was set up within, what, about two weeks at the start of the pandemic, and people got paid on that first payday as they should have been. Likewise, the UC uplift worked, um, because UC itself was a massive database project. If, you know, it doesn't really bear thinking about how we would have managed all the benefits of people through COVID if we'd been dealing with the six, seven separate systems we had before UC incredibly painful work to mash all those databases together but the proof of the value of that was seen in the way it was able to respond to an unprecedented situation and likewise the vaccines the nhs isn't perfect on data as i'll come to but the fact that we had the nhs app already there we had a ability to share some of that data to get the fact that you've been vaccinated into the system then you could turn it into a vaccine passport if you wanted no not everybody wanted vaccine passports but we had enough bits of data floating around the system that we could identify people we could track people we knew who to contact Things that didn't work are where we, we tried to build them from scratch. Test and Trace famously lost a load of cases because they were using Excel to try and manage their data. Uh, that's, that's not how it should be working. Likewise, the government couldn't even actually message all of its citizens. We had to beg the mobile phone operators to do that for us in order to try and get essential public health messages out through more, more means than just you know, broadcast on the telly and so on. So I think there's a real point that, that Robert made in the article he wrote a while back about this is that policy, the policy options that are open to a government are actually somewhat predetermined, the options, not the choice you make, by what you can actually do. And let's look at benefits uplift, uh, benefits uprating is topical at the moment. We only, we only gave people 3% back in March and when the inflation rate was already up to 7 or 8%. I remember talking to Rishi Sunak at the time and saying, why, why do we use a figure that's five months old? Because when you've got rapidly changing inflation, surely you want to give people an up-to-date uh, up to date rate, and it's a, literally it's a computer says no situation. The, the DWP cannot update more rapidly than that. It needs to be essentially programmed well in advance to get all of this there. Obviously, that's something we should improve. It would be better in future when inflation changes rapidly that people get an uplift that reflects the current inflation rate rather than what it was five months ago. Um, and we still have lots of databases in our, in our state that don't talk to each other. And as an MP, we see that in caseload. We see that for people struggling with DVLA or the passport office or trying to get a visa. And, and you see it also on the very front line of the NHS. And I hope integrated care boards will address this. But at the moment, when people turn up in A&E, it's almost, you know, if, if they're unconscious, the people at A&E just have to guess what's wrong with them. They can't, even though there are perfectly good records out there, that there may be perfectly good records that their doctors know perfectly well what's wrong with them. They will know what allergies they might have, they'll know all of these things. And yet, if we could share that data better, we could deliver a better service in A&E, we could deliver a better service in basic functions of the state, such as getting people identity documents like passports and so on. Um, so I think there's a, a huge scope for us to do better, and I think some of what's being proposed will do that. Uh, and the other thing is that it's not just about data, it's about the analysis you can get from data. Um, so collecting data, gives people individually a better experience, provided they, they trust the system. But if you get a lot of data, you can then do analysis on that data and you can make the system better. Most obviously medically, um, but there are risks around that and we'll come to that, but Ben Goldacre talked about all of that sort of stuff. But also just basic, how you deliver better public services, what works. If you've got the data and you do A-B testing and you give one people one approach, one people another, you can see what works better. And you know, 
it might be a little bit out of fashion, but the whole nudge concept of seeing what works better uh, by looking at the data and seeing how many people send in their tax returns because you give them that little nudge or whatever, it's still very valuable. That's a, a way we can improve public services and be more efficient for everybody. Uh, I'm conscious I've already gone over my five minutes, but the two big risks are obviously digital exclusion, and we need to find a way to make sure we reach people who don't want to engage uh, electronically and still make sure they get the benefits of the, the improved public services. And of course, privacy. Uh, I would urge you all to have a look at the Science and Tech Committee's review of this, and in particular, I'd have, urge you to have a look at the hour and a bit of evidence we took from Ben Goldacre, because he's absolutely on top of this. He did the review independently for the government. He personally withdrew his data from the NHS um, data gathering exercise, which in itself was a, you know, a disastrous repetition of something that already happened in care.data in 2013. If people don't trust the system and they withdraw the consent for their data to be used and collected and then used pseudonym pseudonymously or anonymously, then you don't get the right outcomes because you, you start introducing biases into that analysis. You start, and, and particularly it was the case that black people withdrew their data more than, more than white people. Um, and certain you know, groups were, were not prepared to uh, work with it. We have to make sure that people trust what we're doing. We have to have trusted research environments for the most sensitive things, such as uh, medical data. But if people are going to hand over their data to the government, they need to be very confident that it's going to be used for the right purposes, that it's not going to be sold off commercially. Conscious I've taken a bit too long, Gavin, but that, hopefully that's a good primer. That's a brilliant start. Thank you very much, Aaron. Uh, Millie. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking about this and about, you know, kind of government use of data for public services. Um, and I, I don't think government use of data um, for public services is new. Um, so I, I think that my first experience or awareness of it is um, when I was at primary school and we were taught the nativity story where King Herod conducts a census. And so Mary and Joseph have to go back to Bethlehem to be counted there. You know, so then that's... That's you know government using data or collecting data in order to plan and so on. Um, it's just it's not presented to us as that. Um, so if I think back on what's changed now compared to you know King Herod's time, I would say the kind of um, the quality of the data being collected and our approach to data collection has improved. Um, I would say the sophistication of the analysis, the kinds of analysis that we can do with data collection has changed. That's why you don't have to go back to the town that you, you're born in in order to, to be counted. And finally, I think our understanding of the ecosystem around data practices. So I'll go through each of those um, and think about the opportunities and then also the risks for each one of those. So thinking about how the quality of data collection has improved and the quality of data I guess I'd say that the kind of epitome of this is um, what's called digital data. And Erin, you mentioned the kind of inquiry, it's the right to privacy digital data. Digital data is data that's collected online or collected from internet of um, things, from sensors and so on. Um, so it's kind of, it's already digitized, so to speak. Um, or the source of that data is, is a digital source. Um, and of course, the kind of, you know, um, when you have digital data, then you can produce digital public services. And with that, you can get exactly the kind of... Um, a public service version of what you get with digital services, so you can get personalization, you can get optimization, um, you can get efficiency, you can get better outcomes because it's tailored for you, you know, and you can get that at a much higher speed and granularity than kind of traditional data sources or other kinds of, you know, um, working with data. So that's the epitome of the kind of quality of data collection that's now available to us. Um, and, and just thinking about the benefits for public services in terms of efficiency and outcomes and, and so on, and, and timeliness. Um, thinking about that second point, the kind of um, the sophistication of analyses that we can do now. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the pandemic, you know, Gavin, you mentioned that kind of comment about the high water mark. And, I mean, Erin, you mentioned some of the kind of, you know, um, when government was trying to kind of be able to send messages to people via the kind of mobile phone operators. So really interesting use case of, you know, um, unexpected kind of analyses is the way mobility data, transport sector data was 
was used for public health responses, both to understand the patterns of movement around the country, you know, at the beginning of lockdowns, but also where, where support was needed to get people to work, to get key workers and emergency workers to, to work. So mobility data became a form of public health data. And you can only do that with kind of, you know, really kind of like interesting models and so on and understanding both causation and correlation if you're working with proxies. ONS are doing some really interesting stuff with experimental statistics and um, thinking about now casting the economy and so on. So like you can do such interesting things with alternative data sources, non-traditional data sources, producing all sorts of interesting models um, that, that you can work with as, as policymakers, as economists and so on. Um, and finally, that third point, the kind of understanding of the ecosystem around data use. So at the ODR, we had this project called Open, Open Cities, which was looking at the way um, cities, local authorities can work with the data they already have, rather than um, having to invest in kind of, you know, the expensive technological hardware of smart cities, which might be out of budget for a lot of local authorities. So just thinking, how can you work effectively with the data you've already got? Um, and I remember one local council, they, they decided to take um, every freedom of information request they got, they took it as a sign of kind of failure in customer service for not anticipating their constituents and their stakeholder needs. So they were proactive about publishing data that reduced the number of kind of administrative FOI requests that came in. The data being available then became used for innovation and so on, but it also built trust with their constituents and with their stakeholders. So thinking about how, you know, working with the data you've already got, being open, publishing, thinking about transparency, thinking about governance, thinking about community engagement is a way to get those better outcomes without the expensive you know, technology needed for digital data, which was the other example I mentioned. So here, those are the opportunities. Um, briefly on the risks around each one. So digital data, it's fantastic when it works well, but what about when it doesn't work? So what about you know, if digital data isn't collected in some areas? That means the kind of predictive and analytics just won't cover it. And then you get gaps in what is essentially public sector infrastructure. If there is an analysis for certain communities there are mentioned, but also maybe for certain regions and so on. And that's linked to the digital divide. If, if, you know, if digital data isn't collected in some regions or some neighborhoods, then there, that data won't be available for analysis and for planning and for use by policymakers. Um, related, digital data is not the epitome of data use. So um, thinking about the kind of, you know, our, our UK national census, um, it used to be done, you know, someone would knock on your door and ask you questions. And some questions you wouldn't want to answer truthfully, you know, there and then. And some questions you probably would prefer to answer privately, you know, on, on a computer. So sometimes if people were asked personal questions, they would lie maybe to not, not have to disclose aspects of themselves. And then the data collected about them would not be representative. So just understanding that kind of you've got to think, is this the right data collection tool? Is this data collection going to be representative? Are we exercising our kind of political and emotional intelligence about the way in which we are approaching this data set? Um, risks around kind of sophisticated analysis. Well, you know, you get those issues of trust and suspicion about what data can be used for. Um, we, we found in some of our research at the Open Data Institute that when you, when you monitor um, for equality in who's accessing digital public services, the fact of that monitoring can then deter them from using those public services because they might not want to be monitored. So the act of observing changes behaviour, whereas actually it's an equality requirement that you're able to kind of prove that you know, you're making sure this is available in an equitable way, but the act of trying to demonstrate that you're being equitable might actually discourage people from stepping forward and using the very digital service you're, you're providing. So again, how are we going to adapt to that? Um, and finally, just on the, the point about understanding the ecosystem around data practices. Um, so at the ODI, the reason that we work with companies and government is because government's a massive player in the data ecosystem. You know, we, we tend to focus on, you know, industries, the kind of big data stewards, but government's a huge player in the ecosystem. And what government does or doesn't do with data and what 
The ecosystem sees government do or not do with data, sets the tone for the others. So government can lead by example. The way government works with its data can set, set the high watermark for what does good look like, um, what does ethical data use look like. But also government working well with its data frees up that data to flow through the ecosystem, to flow to civil society, to flow to SMEs, and so on. And that's, you know, then you get the network effects across the economy. So government getting its house in order, I think, will have knock-on effects for, um, for everyone else. I'll stop there. Thanks, Millie. Matthew. Great. Thank you, Gavin. Um, thank you for having me. And <coughs> it's, it's, it's good to be back, uh, back here in, in Birmingham. Uh, you didn't go far enough back in my, my work experience. Last time I was here was at the Lib Dem Party conference when mm -hmm. I was an employee of the Liberal Democrats. And so I'm happy to explain my um, CV um, in the Q&A session, if you like. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm a, rel a relatively new addition to, to CPS. My wife and I moved um, to London in July after um, my eight-year stint at, at the Cato Institute, where I worked a lot on uh, emerging technology policy and um, especially civil liberties and new technology. So I did a lot of work on uh, facial recognition drones, body cameras, and those sorts of things. Uh, and, and so I thought what I would do with my time is to, to highlight um, what I think are the opportunities and risks and how they might be, might be mitigated given uh, what I know about um, the government's um, plans uh, as well as my experience uh, in the United States. Um, the first thing I want to say is that I think when it comes to public services, uh, you're going to have uh, trust comes with um, commitments and a track record, right? If the government has a track record of safeguarding privacy um, and a track record of delivering goods, uh, whether that is um, healthcare, law enforcement, those sorts of things, and I think you can, um, you can get trust um, from the public. Uh, law enforcement, though, I think is a good example of where a lot of this can, can, go, can go wrong. Uh, it was interesting um, to come over here uh, to, to see the, uh, the prominence of Palantir with, uh, with the NHS and the work that they do um, given that in the, United, in the United States, it's well known um, as the company that helped build the Trump administration's deportation databases. Uh, and, and I think what, what the government needs to do, first off, um, I, I think, is to have a commitment to transparency about what kind of data sets are going to be used, how they'll be used, under what circumstances, and what, what kind of data is, um, is up for grabs. Um, I mean, healthcare is an amazing example. I think this, this, uh, the UK... Um, benefits from a national health service that has a lot of data. Um, many, many countries can't claim that. And, and when thinking about this panel, I was thinking of um, examples in the past when government being open with data has resulted in multi-billion dollar industries. In the US, when the, the, national, Oceani Oceani the national Oceanic Atmospheric Administration um, released a whole lot of data um, to the public that gave birth to a lot of um, multi-billion dollar industries, um, mostly over mapping and GPS and all these other sorts of things. And with health healthcare, the amount of data we put out on smart watches, monitoring how much we walk or we eat, there's, there's a potential there for a revolution in healthcare data, um, but it, it um, is conditioned on people feeling safe in giving up that data to the public and to private companies. Uh, now, what, what I, 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 I'm, I'm wary of, of going on too long, um, but what I did want to mention is um, a, a couple of um, features of the debate in the United States that you see sometimes over here that I want to warn against um, when it comes to data and, and, and privacy. But the first is um, 
as, as, as Millie mentioned, I think any, any regulation or law that, that uh, wants to talk about um, data privacy um, needs a taxonomy of data that doesn't lump data into silos, whether it's this is what we'll call healthcare data, this is what we'll call transport data, this is what we'll call um, uh, education data. That, as I think Millie pointed out, um, mobility data became health data um, in, the, in the pandemic, and that's, that's important to keep in mind. Uh, also, I think uh, in, in the U.S. from the Republicans, you've actually seen some push for uh, calls for data to be treated as a property right or, or right in, um, you have a property right in data or that you should have um, a price on your data. Um, and, and this, I think, is conceptually confused but also very bad for, um, for innovation. Um, it seems sort of weird to, to assign a property right to data. It seems strange to say that you could own something you don't even know exists, for example. Uh, and it's... Um, I think difficult to um, go through. It would be an entire presentation on why I think it wouldn't be a good approach to put a price on data, mostly um, because it doesn't share um, the qualities we associate with other goods, uh, like oil, for example. You see hear this quite often. Uh, we heard at conference actually that uh, the UK is um, considering its own GDPR, and these are the kind of risks that I think we should um, uh, be, be aware of. Um, but, but I remain an, an, an optimist. I, I started my career in public policy as a real privacy maximalist, and um, I don't think I'm quite on that position anymore. But nonetheless, I think the, the big barrier to actually um, unleashing um, the innovation and growth in um, uh, the technology sector here is uh, will require a commitment to privacy and for the enough members of the public to feel like their privacy is being <coughs> safeguarded. Brilliant. Thanks, Matthew. And Daniel. So thank you for having me on this very important panel. My perspective on how data can be better used in public services comes from the commercial world. And as we all know, society is generating data at an enormous rate, faster than it ever has before. And as a result, um, it's become a vital decision-making component in almost every aspect of, of business life today. Even once reluctant sectors like healthcare and finance are now turning to external web data to help them generate uh, critical insights. And just as a very recent example, we conducted a survey this month with the survey firm Vance & Born, looking at hundreds of companies across the US and uh, Europe. And it found that 99% of businesses claimed that web data was integral to their business decision-making processes. And 87% claimed that this had increased in the last year. So this tiny glimpse into very recent survey results clearly illustrates just how important data is for business decision-making across sectors, and in particular, web data. And when we talk about web data, we mean public information that's available on websites that anyone with an internet connection and a computer can go and access. So the challenge here is not about getting access to some secret data that you know, is hard to access in and of itself. It's about being able to pull this data together at a large scale and make sense of it. There are great opportunities for the public sector to do this as well. Uh, but in order to understand the context, I think it's helpful if I talk a little bit about Bright Data and the Bright Initiative first. So Bright Data is considered the market-leading web data platform. And again, we're talking about web data here. So this is public information that you don't need a, a login or you know, a password or, or anything like that to, uh, to access. And when organizations want to use web data and make sense of it all, they naturally come to Bright Data. So I think it's helpful to give some examples um, because we use this word data a lot, but I think it's, 
it comes to life more when we talk about some sort of specific kind of case studies. So just to give you um, some sort of illustrative examples, online retailers nowadays can change the price of every single product up to 10 times a day. And to do this in an optimal way requires an enormous amount of data, including on what their competitors charge for obvious reasons. Alternatively, you know, any organization can gather you know, public social media sentiment data from um, you know, reviews or social media um, about any you know, new product or, or initiative that it might be, might be running. Um, and as a sort of final example from another area of business, you know, investors will look at all kinds of public data points um, on a company before making that, that all-important investment decision. So Bright Data helps all these businesses. And you know, these data points are generated by our automated AI-driven technology. And what's important, because it's automated and because it's an efficient technology, um, is that it allows these insights to be available to a wide range of organizations. So not just you know, the largest companies in the world that have the biggest engineering teams, you know, the biggest data science teams. This data can become available to a much wider range of, of, of companies um, and, and other organizations too. So that's the commercial side of the business. Two years ago, we established the Bright Initiative, which is a pro bono program which aims to use the same web data to make a positive global impact, essentially. And as part of this program, we work with the public sector and nonprofit organizations. So we're active members of the UK's National Data Strategy Forum and provide free advice, training, um, and data itself where, where it's helpful. Today, the Bright Initiative works with over 600 organizations. Among them are 89 of the world's 100 leading universities. Um, and in total, we're partnering with 270 universities, the UN, as well as dozens of environmental and social nonprofits, um, and also governments. We're helping them with a wide range of issues, from using web data to help fight human trafficking, to you know, using social media sentiment to try and battle aspects of climate change. So there's really no end to the positive impacts you can derive from public web data. You just have to know where to find it and how to use it. So businesses worldwide are creating really powerful new insights about their customers, their needs, and the commercial opportunities that they present. And these same principles and technologies can be applied to design public services that are more efficient and achieve their goals more effectively. So again, I think it's helpful to provide some examples. Um, so it sort of brings to life the, the kind of high-level idea, if that makes sense. So, you know, just to give you some, some real examples, um, as part of the Bright Initiative, we've been collecting sentiment data from local public forums and social media sites to give local authorities a sort of granular insight into, uh, you know, local public priorities like local infrastructure, transports, and crime, and these sorts of you know, thorny local issues where it's not always easy to get sort of clear and immediate feedback from, from the public on, on sort of local decision making. And this can even go down to the, to the level, and this is a real example again, of sort of informing, you know, bus timetables and, uh, you know, issues with sort of local public transport by looking at check-in data and seeing how people flow around a city, you know, at what time and at what rate and uh, that sort of thing. Um, and another example from a completely different area of government 
is using data on the pricing and availability of electric cars and charging infrastructure to inform electric vehicle policy. So, you know, there's no sort of one approach and one kind of mindset. It's about understanding, you know, what you can do with, uh, with web data and uh, the, then having the skills to, to, to use it. Um, so the possibilities are, are numerous and are really growing by, uh, by the minute. Um, of course, it's important to say, you know, public web data is very powerful, but it's not the only data that should be relied on um, in policymaking. And this should, of course, be in conjunction with more traditional data sources like ONS data to ensure that policymaking is, you know, is inclusive and fully informed. And having said all that, of course, I'd like to stress that it's very important, you know, as I think we're all aware, that the ethics of data collection and use are factored in up front. And obviously the topic of, you know, trust in data and its use by government is uh, of growing public concern. So if we can collectively get that aspect right, um, then I think we have a major opportunity, you know, to use data to improve public services in the UK and make the UK, you know, a sort of global hub of, uh, of data innovation. Um, and so to perhaps try and sort of directly answer, you know, the question of how, you know, how, um, how public data can be used to improve public services, I think the sort of key principles that we see at Bright Data are, first of all, maintaining trust uh, at all costs, because that sort of underpins everything. Um, you know, ensuring that government and, uh, you know, the public sector develop the right skills and having appropriate partnerships, um, you know, with, with private companies to help the public sector keep up, um, you know, the pace of its understanding as this industry really is in the sort of hyper growth, you know, hyper innovation phase in the, in the private sector at the moment. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, before I come to the audience for questions, I'm going to ask a quick question of the panel, and I'll, I'll go in the same order mm. as we start. All of you touched on the importance of trust mm. uh, and building public trust. What do you think government and public services in particular need to do to build and maintain that trust? So, I mean, I think there's uh, really interesting to hear what everyone else says. I think there's been a, also a fundamental culture shift as to what is publicly available data. I mean, the things that used to always, it was always public that you drove down the motorway. So I drove down the M6 to get here on Sunday between 12 and 1. Anyone could have always seen me doing that in the past, but it wasn't recorded, and now it is recorded. So that's now publicly available data somewhere that the Highways England have probably recorded on the various average speed cams they have on that route. Likewise, it's even got to the point now, the fact that I walked from my apartment to here this morning, I would have been picked up by CCTV. The Chinese have probably hacked my phone as an MP and all the rest of it. So the, 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 the simple things that were always ostensibly public, but in practice really private, um, has changed. Uh, likewise, what you did 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, this whole right to be forgotten thing is much, much harder. And that's why, you know, if, you're think if some of you are thinking going into politics, be very, very careful on Facebook already, you know, you, we, we, because things don't get forgotten about in the way they used to, and things get recorded and so on. So in, but in terms of what the government can do to build trust, um, I think there's what everybody said about a, a track record. I mean, trust isn't, trust isn't delivered by passing a law or by declaring that people need to trust you. Trust is delivered, and, and the way trust actually works between people is, is through proof of concept, that you, keep, that, that you give your data, you, you get vaccinated, that doesn't get shared with people so that they can't affect, change your premiums or all the rest of it. And some of the really big stuff is about genomic data as well, that if you, if you actually have your genome sequenced, the people who take that information, whether it's an ancestry website or whether it's for medical reasons, 
won't go and blab that you have got an indicator for Huntington's or whatever. There's a, and you can only demonstrate that by having demonstrating it as, as companies that use the data and government using that data, but also you do, you do it through the track record and you obviously need to make sure that you have, you're very secure as well. So people will, trust will be built if people can see that you can be trusted and it really is, it is like that, but I think the government can do a bit through what it does with the legislation. Um, one of the things that Ben Goldacre called for um, was uh, in his evidence to us is that we need, we need to be very, very strict about people misusing data. We need to put much stronger fines into demonstrate just how unwelcome it is and, and de-pseudonymization, which is basically, if you get a big data set of, of health data and there are actual real people's records, but you know, they don't identify where you live, but, the, but if you've got your age in there and the, you know, when you had treatments and so on, it's not the, beyond the wit of man to try and actually identify people. And it's been done to politicians and business people around the world already. I do think we need to put some really, really tough potential criminal penalties in as well. Uh, I don't know quite where the government is on that, but I think the idea that we take this really seriously, um, that, that the most egregious misuses of this public data that most people would reasonably think is private, even though we know it isn't, I think we need to do something around that as well to, to really uh, make people understand that we are taking this seriously. But trust doesn't come through us doing things, trust comes through uh, saying things, it comes through doing things. Great, thank you. Millie. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so um, on that point about penalties, I think redress mechanisms are going to be really important. So it's not, not, sometimes you can't prevent things going wrong, but if there is confidence and resilience about how that will be handled, um, then, then it can be navigated. So just, you know, putting redress mechanisms in really robust ones, um, and if, pub if the public trusts those, then they'll feel more confident about kind of stepping into the unknown. Um, but also I was just thinking that, you know, um, Government is not a monolith in the same way that industry is not a monolith. Industry ranges from SMEs right through to multinational corporations. And so government is, you know, it's local government, it's central government, it's all sorts of different departments and functions and roles. And people will have different trust relations with different aspects of government. You know, they might have a very strong trust relationship with local government um, and maybe, you know, a strong relationship with particular departments or particular roles in central government. And I think as policymakers, we tend to want to go for where there's the biggest impact. You know, that's the great use case that will deliver the most social benefits or, you know, the most economic benefits. But I wonder whether there's something to be said with starting where there's the highest public trust and working with that and using that as the proof of concept and so on, rather than where we, we know the most urgent use cases for policy. Thanks, Millie. Matthew. Um, some, something that I think should be emphasized, I think, on, on, on the privacy side and on, on the trust is that oftentimes with um, digital privacy, it's about context, not the content, right, of data. So um, there, there are some things, everyone can think of something that maybe they wouldn't tell their parents, but they would, in, in their lifetime, but they would tell a therapist within two minutes, or, <laughs> right? And, and where, the, where information is housed uh, is crucially important in determining if it's private or not. And uh, so, so what, what I think it, in developing trust, I think the, the government needs to um, be transparent about in not only what content is being collected, but in what context it will be used. And that uh, in, in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, the, the use of, of data to, um, to preserve um, a, a state of public health, I think a lot of people would say is, is appropriate, but it would not be appropriate to use the same data set to see if um, eating crisp and walking one mile correlates with obesity or something. Um, you know, that, that I think is, is important. Um, and and I, it is important to, to point out that, that government is not a monolith. It, it's, it's interesting to see which wings of the government enjoy high public trust. There's, there's high public trust in uh, the military, for example, uh, and, and um, transport. So, uh, well, trust is different on reliability, but anyway. Um, 
So, so that, that I think is, um, is important. I mean, something I, I've argued for before is that before any significant change, and define that however you want, but before significant change on data collection or data um, analysis tools, I think that should be, at, at, you know, months before that happens, there should be, those months should be um, used for public comment and engagement with the civil liberties community and with researchers um, so that there can be input. Uh, I, I think too often um, people find out about breaches or um, horrible uses of data after the fact. And uh, that one, one way to do this, and the details would have to be ironed out, is for the government to regularly employ hackers to see, like, hey, we do have this. What, what terrible thing could you do with it? Um, in a closed system, of course. But, but the, these are some ways that you could perhaps in, increase trust um, with, with the public. I think the cabinet office recently advertised for exactly that robot. Oh, did they? Somebody, oh, yeah. somebody to try. Great minds think alike. <laughs> and uh, finally, Daniel. So just to pick up on something Aaron said, it's uh, it's not only politics where you need to be careful what you uh, put on social media for your career. A friend of mine recently starting a new job had to explain some of his social media posts from a few uh, a few years ago, and that was just at a bank. So you know, it's not uh, it can it can happen to anyone. Um, but to answer the question, um, I think. The details of the sort of policy side um, are probably leave to my better qualified um, colleagues, but the sort of fundamental principles that we see at Bright Data as being really important in maintaining the trust is firstly to have clear and consistent regulation. Um, and one of the big issues for the industry historically is that there just has not been that regulation there have not been those consistent guidelines to work to. And so I think just having a clear framework there is, uh, is very important. Um, you know, secondly, I think clear informed consent from the subjects of data. It, it sort of sounds obvious, but it's amazing how complicated a question, what informed consent is, can become. But I think being very clear that you, you have that um, clearly is, is important. And finally, complete transparency. So at Bright Data, the way we maintain trust with our customers and all our stakeholders is being completely clear and transparent about what data we collect, what we do with it, where it goes, and that's all sort of freely publicly available. So it's not sort of hidden behind any kind of uh, shields of, of secrecy. So I think those are probably the kind of general principles that, that we see. Great. Yeah, sure. Um, just because I... I Daniel mentioned something that, that I wanted to pick up on. This emphasis on regulation, I think, is, is important. Uh, but um, given that we'll soon be thinking about a British GDPR, I just think it's us all being being wary of the potential anti-competitive effects of, of regulation. Um, oftentimes, I worry about regulation making big tech bigger. Uh, you know, Google testifying in, in the US Congress said they dedicated, I think it was the equivalent of 100 human beings' lifetime hours just to compliance with GDPR. Uh, and uh, after GDPR, the market share in digital advertising of Facebook and Google grew in Europe. Uh, and, and so I think, it, and I'm not going to pretend it's an easy task, but, but ensuring that there's a, a digital privacy regulation that is something a, a firm with 50 employees can comply with um, in the same way that Google can comply with um, without being anti-competitive is, is difficult, but not, not impossible um, and worth keeping in mind. Thanks, and I suppose the same goes for public services as well, having, yeah, to, yeah, having to do that. Uh, we'll come to you, the audience, for questions now. I'll try and take them in batches of two or three. Uh, do tell us who you are. Uh, remember, we are on the record, and please do keep your questions relatively short so we can get through as many as possible. Uh, so put your hands up now if you'd like to ask one. We've got a gentleman at the back and then a couple of rows ahead as well. Uh, I'm Richard McCarthy. I'm the 
chairman of the Smart Meters Data and Communication Company. Um, so um, we um, deliver data between the consumer and the energy system and back. Uh, and uh, I also speak to you as an ex-government official, and it was quite interesting the way you were starting to develop the conversation there about um, how government can be different. And of course, people themselves are not rational. Um, and this issue of trust, I worry that government officials at times think they are the sole owners of decisions of what's trust and therefore how to design the system. So Matt Hancock was rightly frustrated when he found that data in the health sector, in the public health sector, wasn't shared between its own organisations. And I think consumers, you know, ordinary citizens, felt equally shocked. They kind of assumed that was happening. But at the same time, we have a number of people who won't take a smart meter because they think their data is going to be shared with whoever and there's some national conspiracy, despite the fact, that, although not very well known, that that data system is more secure than your internet banking uh, is going to be. It uses public key infrastructure, so it's multi-layered encryption signed off and designed by GCHQ. Um, now, that isn't very sexy to tell people, so it somehow gets lost in the messaging. Um, and the, the point of laying all of that out is, the analysis on the table is great. So what would you advise government now to do? How does government move on that story so it uses privileged and open data to deliver better public services and at the same time build confidence that the use of that data, when it is shared or aggregated, actually brings benefit back to the consumer? Brilliant, thank you. Yes, hello. Hello, my name is Christopher Day. I'm the um, district councillor for uh, Witchhaven District Council, and um, I look after housing, health, and well-being. So that's my um, passion, I suppose. I think in talking about trust, most people would probably think of doctors as people that they would trust. They they would come up at the top of the professional list. I think they'd see that the NHS was something they still just about trusted overall. So I think the NHS to to the point that Aaron was making earlier on, it is key in all of this. If there was one thing that we could do well at, it would be in proving to people that in capturing their data for the NHS, it was being put to a good and worthy use and that it was safe. Um, how do you think that's going to be done? And do you think we should make the data that the NHS has available to, uh, in an, in an, an anonymized way to uh, everyone in this country or every business in this country or every country and every uh, academic institution worldwide. What's your thinking about that? Excellent, thank you. I'll go in reverse order on the panel this time. So Daniel first, then Matthew, then Millie, then Aaron. Great. So I think in terms of moving, moving the conversation forward, I think people need to see clear benefits and I think there's a big difference between using people's data for projects that they fundamentally consider to be you know positive social outcomes and using people's data for things they don't understand or they feel are sort of exploitative um, and you know the, the sort of obvious example is you know sharing health data as you said between uh, you know different uh, sort of divisions of the NHS clearly is in the aim of a positive social outcome. But if someone's data, you know, was ended up being sold to, you know, some company to sell products or make an investment decision or whatever it might be, even if that money was later used for, you know, a positive social 
benefit, um, I think people would feel exploited by that. So I think there needs to be a very open and transparent discussion about what constitutes ethical, legitimate use of data. And that might be stating the obvious, but one experience that Bright Data has had as one of the sort of pioneering companies in, in this sector, and admittedly, we focus very much on sort of open web data, so this isn't sort of people's personal information, so it's a slightly different conversation. But one issue that we've had is that there are no sort of generally accepted norms and standards as to, you know, what is considered ethical use of data. And one of the things that we've sort of been, been working on over the years is how do we define that? So we have sort of internal policies around what we consider to be ethical use of data, but we've had to develop them ourselves to try and be a, a sort of leader in this area. And so I think broadening that conversation, making it very sort of public and transparent and getting a lot more sort of input from, from different stakeholders is probably the sort of single thing I can think of to sort of move that conversation about trust forward. So I think that's... Um, yeah, the, the gentleman's question in the back reminded me that I, I think it, it's oftentimes um, unhelpful to, to think of privacy as, as, a, as a right. I mean, I, I think of it as a, a condition people enjoy when they control information about themselves. And everyone in their life knows that people value information about their own lives differently. Some people, if you're on Instagram or TikTok, some people are very open about their romantic lives and very secretive about their education or where they work. And some people are very public about where they go on holiday, but they're very secretive about what they eat. Uh, nonetheless, I think all these different people feel that they have privacy when they feel that they have control over it, that it's not being shared without their consent or it's not being um, sold without their knowledge. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a struggle because you do find some of the people who um, will wear, um, you know, wear masks to conceal themselves from facial recognition or won't buy smart meters or won't get social media accounts because everyone values that this all very differently. Um, which brings me on to the, the second um, gentleman's question because I, I think at first glance the, the anonymization of, of data uh, sounds, sounds good, but, but we should remember that some, some data is a proxy for other sets of data without even intending it. I mean, there are many parts of the country where your postcode is a pretty good indicator of your race, for example. Uh, and people who are wary about um, the government knowing their race, for example, would not be reassured if they said, oh, don't we, we've anonymized the NHS data, it only shows your postcode. They say, well, that's not particularly reassuring. Uh, and that's, that's um, again, not an argument against not doing it, but I think it is an argument for the government being more transparent about what they're doing with it, which is, um, I mean, you could take any example, but yeah, we're selling it to um, uh, a University of Cambridge lab to research um, HIV rates and where, you know, that, that then people might say, okay, that's, that's fine. Uh, but um, to do a carte blanche and say, if you're interested in British NHS data, we're an open shop, then I think you might have, have problems. Thanks. Millie. Thank you. Um, so to take the second question first, um, I just wanted to pick up on Matthew's point. Yeah, so for example, um, genetic data about me is also genetic data about anyone I'm related to. So even if I give consent, I'm still kind of like allowing data that's indirectly about other people to be, to be used and to be analysed, and they haven't given consent. Um, so one thing that we've certainly argued um, in terms of the kind of data protection reform is that the future of data protection is going to be around collective rights, collective harms, and collective benefits. GDPR was a consumer right and an individual right, but it's not really fit for purpose for all the different ways data can be used now. So thinking ahead to kind of societal and collective rights, benefits, and harms. Um, 
but on the point about kind of you know the, the frustrations that people aren't aren't rational it's not just that they're not rational they're also not consistent um so it's you know in the same way that you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to, to data policy maybe it's not kind of you know a one one intervention that's true for all time um, and i think ada lovelace institute at one point they were working with an anthropologist to observe and study people's practices around data because that's perhaps more accurate than people's reported values reported preferences and so on the anthropology of how people are working or not working with data um, and then finally, just because I think it's very easy for us to kind of think of all the things that are going wrong. Um, at the ODI, we had an event with, um, the, with Estonia's Director of Data Policy, and she said, look, you know, we're always held up as this poster child of, you know, how great we are, but said, we have to keep renegotiating the social contract too. Just because we were at one point data and digital leaders, it doesn't mean our population always wants to do things. We have to negotiate with them for the next thing. We don't know if the next thing is going to work. And I think that's just really important to learn that, like, Maybe the UK is at the beginning of a journey, but that doesn't mean it's going to be um, a smooth journey, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's failing either. And even the ones who, you know, who we might consider success stories have to go through this process of trying new things and failing and not knowing what's going to work and so on. Thanks, Penny. Um, yeah, briefly answer the first question. I agree with what Millie said really about the social contract element of it. I mean, we, we encouraged, I think, for quite a while for the idea that people own their own data, and in, in a sense they don't really. It's data about you, it's not your data, and if someone else has got it and they've got it for a legitimate reason, then that's an, a line in their database that they're in, you know, entitled to use for legitimate business purposes or public sector service purposes. Um, and how we, and that's a sort of cultural shift again in, in, in how we think about it, and if it's for the benefit of society, um, that, that we can agglomerate that data and do better things and I think that's a, that's part of the societal contract that, that we're all members of society I mean if you want to be a hermit and live at home and never go out at all that, that, that's your lookout but otherwise you would expect businesses and public services alike to listen to what their customers do look at how they react look at what they prefer and react accordingly to come to Christopher's question about the NHS look um you know I was, I was on a life sciences panel yesterday the life sciences love the UK because we have that the NHS, which is, is absolute, as uh, Matthew re referenced earlier, a massive asset for trying to develop these things. Um, and I think it's fairly obvious, well, it seems fairly obvious, and this comes to the social contract point, if you go to your doc doctors, then obviously they're entitled to your data because they're trying to treat you, but also, to some extent, the NHS is entitled to your data as well to try and inform its understanding of the spread of disease, as we had during COVID, but the, the, the prevalence of these things and so on, and or, you know, ideally to store your data in a set in a, in a format that will be available to A&E, as I said earlier, if they need it, and will also be available in a not so personal format to people who are responsible for formulating public policy. And that, I don't think you, you can sign a consent form that gets that exactly across. I think it's implicit that that's what we're going to do. Um, and in terms of the, we heard exactly this evidence that people were very comfortable actually with sharing it with research into how to cure cancer if it was a pub, if it was a you know, a, a university doing pure research. And then it got a little bit more edgy when it was, oh, well, but a private company might profit from it. And this is obviously this suspicion of profit that as conservatives we have to deal with throughout uh, a, lot of, a, lot, a, a lot of discussions. There's a real suspicion that someone is profiting off, again, my, in quotes, my data. And the reality is that you know, businesses, uh, particularly life sciences businesses, are, of course they want to profit, but they're also a social good. And the idea that you can pa package it up and say you mustn't profit from this, uh, so therefore we can't give you the data is nuts. But what we could do is perhaps charge them an appropriate fee and fund the NHS with that. And I think people, I think people might accept that as the, the social contract element of what's going on there. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. We've got under 10 minutes left, so we've got time for a final quick round of <coughs> questions. Got a hand up here. Anybody else want to come in? I'll go in the same order down the panel as last time. Uh, my name is John Smith. Um, my opinions are my own. Um, I don't represent anybody in particular. Um, my, my question is that the, the UK constitution has become increasingly complex over the past 20 or 30 years with the variety of regional and devolved bodies and that has resulted in any attempt to interface with data that's made public by those public bodies ever increasingly complex. To give one example, if I wanted to get the location of postcodes in the United Kingdom, one data set covers the Great Britain and another data set covers Ireland. One of uses Eastings and Northings, another one uses the Irish grid referencing system, and I have to try and combine them together. And that's just one very simple to explain example. What role do you think central government has in terms of trying to bridge that divide and provide aggregated and much more easily accessible data for people to use? Brilliant question. Thank you. Any others? Otherwise, I'm going to add a final question to the panel as well, um, which sort of goes back to one of the, the earlier questions as well. If, if there was one thing that you wanted to see in the Conservative manifesto and indeed in the other parties' manifestos around data and public services for the next election, what would it be? Uh, so also, any final thoughts that the panel have got uh, on top of those two questions? Daniel, let's start with you. So to start with the gentleman's question, um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer the details um, coming from the commercial sector, but I think, you know, a frustration that we obviously deal with as a global company is not just trying to piece together different approaches to regulation within the UK. It's trying to piece together the approaches to regulation, you know, Germany, Estonia, India, etc. Right. Um, and so the extent to which there can be alignment, not just at the sort of governmental level within countries, but also at the sort of supranational level between countries does make life a lot easier for industry. Now, I know that's not always uh, the top of everyone's agenda, um, but yeah, I would certainly agree it would be, it would be very helpful, I think, for, I can think of very little downside to um, align and aggregate data at uh, you know, greater and greater levels of, of scale. So I know that isn't answering your question directly, but that's, uh, that's, um, that would be my sort of take on it, if, uh, if that makes sense. Great. Thank you. Matthew. Um, I'm afraid I don't feel qualified to discuss the first question. My, my knowledge of English constitutional law is a little thin. Uh, but uh, what, what I will say, though, is it's something you know, in the United States, obviously, there's a lot of devolution, you know, state, county, federal, uh, and, and um, similar headaches have, have arisen. Uh, I'm not sure. What, what, what the answer there is. I, I will say, though, that oftentimes I see the private sector just jumping in to solve a lot of these, um, mm. these issues. So uh, your, your question reminded me of what three words, this new you know, um, uh, website that makes it a rather easy to locate um, anywhere on the globe, I think. Um, but uh, I would be hesitant, um, having thought about it for two minutes, uh, to, to embrace a top-down approach to it, um, because oftentimes what you, what, what you find with um, government legibility of its citizens is that oftentimes what the local government is doing isn't just random, that they do have reasons why they do it slightly differently in other parts of the country. So um, I suppose my answer is just proceed with caution. Uh, on, on, on your question, I, I mean, not to sound too vague, but I would say a, a commitment to, to transparency that also um, accepts and states that the, the, the party understands the, the nuance of privacy, and it could only be a few sentences perhaps to say, you know, we're not taking a top-down approach, so we're not going to treat everything the same. Um, we accept the nuances there. Uh, 
Um, but, but more than anything, if I could just, in one sentence, a commitment to transparency as um, would be on top of my wish list at the moment. Thanks, Gavin. Really, um, like, really interesting and difficult questions, and um, I, I, I don't think I, I've got answers quite. Um, so, John, on your question about the kind of, you know, um, the, the frustration about not being able to kind of like link up different data sets. Um, yeah, so I think this speaks to the earlier point about, you know, government needs to get its own house in order if it wants kind of, you know, the rest of the data ecosystem around the country to flow and to be effective. For what it's worth, this isn't just a problem with public sector data, it's also with industry data. So a lot of kind of companies, they, um, they, they, they work through mergers and acquisitions and then when kind of, you know, you have a merger or an acquisition, then you get two different data sets, two different ways of structuring and storing your data and then you can't, you know, those data sets can't link. So that's, it's not a problem unique to the public sector. Um, but again, I think government leading by example, showing how it's done and understanding this is foundational stuff. And if you haven't got your foundations right, you're just kind of building on quite sort of shaky ground. I think government kind of d doing that and sending that message will also help industry take, take that seriously um, and then make it easier for all sorts of communities to work, work with data. Um, gosh, difficult. What would I want to see in the Tory manifesto? Um, uh, hmm. I, would, I would like to see... I would like to see something like a commitment to um, lifelong learning around data skills. And I think we're in danger of seeing it as a one-off intervention now to upskill people for the data digital economy and for you know, job automation and AI. But I don't think it's that. I think it's going to need to be continuous because there are going to be emerging digital technologies all the time. And I think a culture of kind of you know, lifelong learning, so you kind of go in and you retrain a bit, then maybe 10 years later you go and retrain again. I think that might be part of the different social contract that we might need to see emerging that will help the data and digital economy be equitable, be inclusive, unleash the innovation that you know, we, we'd like to see, but I think it needs to be that continuous lifelong learning and not a one-off intervention <coughs> because of the advent of the digital economy. Um, but I'll, I'll keep thinking. It's nice to have a wish list. Thank you. Thanks, Wendy. Um, your question first about the manifesto. Look, I think, I hope there doesn't need to be much in the manifesto about this. It's a, I think it's a reassurance piece for the public at large. What I actually want to see is the government take the steps forward, which I think speaks to John's question a bit about, about how we do better data sharing and how, people, how you get this interoperability, how you get things like, again, going back to the COVID example, the dashboards, which I think were, were a great example of you know, getting different data sets into the same place so people could use them, could, could develop off them. And again, talking about the NHS, we, we, need, to, we need to get the public sector to, to learn from the way the private sector has innovated over the last 10, 15 years through apps and so on. I think there were lo there's loads of potential for, for private companies to develop apps that the NHS could then buy or could invest in even at the beginning and so on, so that people can do simple things for themselves. We, we basically trained the population of this country to self-test over the last two years, and that self-testing mechanism could be used for lots of other uh, diseases, could be used if, if, there's, if it's another pandemic, but it could also be if you get the right sort of um, lateral flow test or equivalent or... Um, PCR test or equivalent, we could repurpose all the work we did into putting in Leamington Spa and all of the other laboratories to, to give us a much better early warning system for people's health. And if, obviously, if you intervene early on people's health, you tend, you tend to actually cost less in the long run. One of the things you could do about that is rather than trying to build a top-down system of IT for the NHS, which obviously failed under, under New Labour, and is you could actually build it bottom-up the way other people are doing it now with an API, with a, you know, obviously there needs to be lots of privacy protections within that, but you say, look, this is, these, these are the calls that you, you can make to the API um, in order to, so somebody can do their own blood tests at home and have that data automatically transferred through an app, you know, with a, a photo of the 
the test or whatever it might be, and get that onto your, your patient record and sa save an awful lot of all the going into hospitals, all the waiting, all the backlogs and so on, by actually engaging with people the way that they are already engaging with their bank or with their energy company or everything else, the smart, smart meters, for example, earlier. If we can, if we can, because people have been conditioned to do this, they've been conditioned that it's testing yourself at home medically is fine. They've also been conditioned on how to use apps. Not everybody has, except that. We've got to have a space, uh, whether it's through uh, you know, patient hubs or whatever, for people who don't want to act like that. But a lot of people do not want to have to make an appointment with their GP. They not have to do the 8 a.m. scramble and all the rest of it. If we can find a way to let the private sector innovate individual apps with, with public ownership even, with co-investment, all the rest of it, I think that would be a really big step forward. It's not necessarily a manifesto project because it's not going to swing any votes. What it would do in the long run is improve outcomes and that's really what we should be in politics for. Fantastic, thank you. Um, just before we leave, a, a few quick things. First of all, as I mentioned, this is actually one of 29 events the IFG has hosted across Labour and Conservative conferences. <coughs> Do listen back on the website in a few days to uh, everything that we've talked about. Uh, if you're interested in data and public <coughs> services, uh, we have a monthly event series called Data Bytes, the latest of which is tomorrow. You can find uh, previous 33 events on our website. We have a project called Performance Tracker, which looks at data on public services to understand how they're performing. I think the, most, the, the next edition of that will be out in the next month or so. Um, we also have a project coming out soon on data sharing during the pandemic and the lessons the government needs to learn. All that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all to you, our audience, uh, for coming along today and some brilliant questions. To the Bright Initiative, uh, supported by Bright Data, uh, for supporting this event and making it possible. And finally, do join me in a round of applause of thanks for our four fantastic panellists today. Thank you very much.